Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Jared McCabe, who's a director at Wakeland Property Advisor. Now, Jared has a fantastic background in property valuation, so he's a very analytical chap when it comes to selecting property. And we chat to him about what makes an A-grade property, some of the oversupply issues with apartments in Melbourne, and how he sources quality assets for investors and guides them to get properties that are going to perform strongly over the long term. Term. It's a great interview with Jared. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Here's Jared. Jared McCabe, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure. Now, kick us off, Jared. Who are you and what do you specialize in? I am a director at Wakeland Property Advisory, and we're a firm that specializes in buying investment properties for uh, private investors in and around Melbourne. Excellent. And I'm very keen to talk to you about uh, Melbourne. It's been an interesting case study and obviously similar things to what's going on in Sydney, but a few different dynamics there. But before we jump in, what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up in uh, in the uh, McCabe household? <laughs> they were very much sport related, Mike. Um, predominantly around basketball. I was uh, a very big basketball fanatic as a kid, uh, like my, my Aussie rules football as well, but uh, a lot of basketball posters on my walls as a kid. Interesting. There's a, there's a real sort of basketball community down uh, down there in Melbourne, but uh, cool. That's good. We've got a bit of an insight. Now, what about property? How did you get started and what was your first investment? I got started into property through a, um, a very close family friend of, um, of ours and particularly one of their sons um, who was in real estate at the time. Uh, and I was very close to him and, um, and did a lot of things and liked a lot of things that he liked. So, um, when I got to uh, about year eleven in uh, in secondary school, there was a, a part of part of the school was to uh, to do a week's worth of work experience. So, the company that he worked for um, did sales, property management, and they also had a uh, property valuations arm. So I spent a week working with them and got a really good cross section in all three of those um, those industries, and uh, that really started to whet my appetite. That um, I had a real interest, particularly in residential property, um, and that's that's where things typically started. So that uh, yeah, so that work experience, I guess, from there you 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 found the vocation for you. And did you did you move into real estate straight away, or did you go to to valuation? No, I went into valuation. So the uh, the business partner of uh, partner of the friend of mine, um, he had a valuations background, and uh, he suggested at the time that um, that's what I should do post school. That um, he would be more than happy at, at any point down the track to give me a an opportunity as a sales agent, uh, if that's what I wanted. But he thought that um, getting a valuations degree would give me a really good base in property. Um, so that's what I did. Went to uh, Adelaide to the University of South Australia um, and did a uh, three-year Bachelor of Business in Property degree um, and still came back after that to uh, to Ballarat, which is where I went to school and where this estate agency business was, um, and still said to them that I had an interest in sales. And, uh, and again, the, uh, the director said to me, well, you need to go and get your full qualification ticket with valuations, which is another two years of supervised work um, before you can become fully qualified. So he, I did that and actually did that in Ballarat with a, um, a local firm there. Um, and then after that, um, I really wasn't all that keen to, to be a sales agent. So I stuck around in valuations for uh, another few years after that, did a, a few of the, uh, the overseas trips that you typically do as a, an early 20-year-old and, um, and then um, stuck in valuations for probably 10 years in total before I switched into um, to property advisory. 
I think you're right that valuation is a really good sort of foundation no matter where you want to go in, in property and it's a real good skill set when you're assessing value as a, a buyer's agent. Do, do, do you think that that gives you a real key edge or, or is it a little bit easier now that we've got the advent of you know the RP datas of the world giving the, the comparable sales and that sort of thing? Look, I certainly think it gives you an edge because it gives you the ability to um, to look at property from a number of different angles and also assess it from a different perspective. Um, sometimes a property's um, highest and best use is not always apparent. So having an understanding of what that might be and being able to apply that to determine whether or not perhaps the property's worth more or less subject to um, other issues, I think that certainly assists. Um, and look, it does, I think all of the extra information that's, been, that's now available to people um, via companies like RP Data and others, um, certainly does level the f- playing field to a degree. But one thing that I've um, certainly learnt is that uh, information is not knowledge. Uh, and being able to provide all of that, uh, get access to all that information is one thing, but then being able to apply it to the marketplace appropriately is certainly another. I think one major advantage as, as well is that when we're, we're looking at building the value of our, our portfolio, portfolio, often I guess the the arbitrator of the value uh, of the value is the valuer. So you're uh, you're moving in and you're saying this is what the the arm's length market value transaction would be on this particular the property. So it's important I think for all property investors to understand some basics of valuation and, and how the value is a is applied to that end now that we've sort of trapped one on the end of this call what tips can you you give us if we are looking to to revalue an investment property or, or value something um with, with a valuer to, to get that best uh, to, to get that best valuation presentation is always important mike in that uh, instance um I, I do remember from a lot of times from when i was valuing that um incomplete homes um half finished renovations and things along those lines can uh can certainly detract fairly significantly, particularly if the property or the improvements on that property are a significant portion of the value. Um, really, it depends on what the property type is. I mean, if the, if it is a, a predominantly land value site, the improvements, and no matter how you present them, are really not going to add that much value. Um, it's going to be more focused on the location. But if your improvements are making up a fair portion of the value, having them presented in the best light is um, is always important. Uh, and that can make a difference then to um, to the overall end value that the value will assess it at. I've had heard people give tips before, like make sure that you print out the comparable sales, and you know there's the real estate tricks of making it smell like paint or coffee or whatever, um, whatever the real estate websites are sort of spruiking at the time. Perhaps a bottle of wine, a smile never hurts. Is there is there anything a little bit more esoteric that people can look towards? A smile certainly never hurts. The bottle of wine probably would turn it the other way and make someone uh, feel as though perhaps will uh, will detract from the value if they're feeling as though they might be uh, trying to be influenced. Um, look, the, the comparable sales can be helpful, but um, any value or worthy salt will know most of the value of the, the sales and know how to compare them. Um, if it's a property that's perhaps got a point of difference um, and is a little bit unusual perhaps, uh, or is in an area where there's not a lot of comparable sales, if there's a, an intimate knowledge that perhaps standard people may not know about, then that can certainly be of assistance. But um, one thing that can be off-putting is that if everyone thinks that their uh, their property more than likely is worth more than what it is, the hardest property to value is your own um, because you see it in such a typically in a positive light. So a valuer will sit back and, and do their own assessments. Um, you can provide them with information, but more than likely they're still going to go away and do their own thing. 
Yeah, okay, no, fair enough. And and you're right, you would hope that uh, a valuer does have a, a, a stack of comparables as part of their, their due diligence. One, one thing that um, my ear pricked up was when you said highest and best use. Now, I, I've um, done part of an advanced diploma of property services and five-eighths of a master's of property, so I'm almost qualified as a valuer. But one thing that I do remember from this course that I've deferred so far that I'll probably never get it back again is highest and best use is a really important concept in valuation and until I guess you you understand what that's all about it can it might just sort of seem like a bit of a phrase but can you talk about how to really calculate what the highest and best use of a property is and how that influences uh, influences the value of that block of land or of that site Look, it's, it's taking into account what alternate uses might be applicable for that property. So, for instance, um, some uh, some properties in some of the inner northern suburbs and some of the inner suburbs of – mo- mo- a lot of the capital cities around um, around Australia have got um, light industrial or light commercial uses to them, which at that point in time, whether it be, have been for manufacturing or storage or things, that was, the, um, that was what was considered to be the highest and best use for those. However – because it's so tight and accessibility in the in the capital cities now, for instance, is is really hard to get to. Um, having light commercial and light industrial in those areas doesn't necessarily make sense. Um, getting trucks to to access them and getting um, materials and things there can be quite difficult. So um, that's why you tend to find that um, most of the industrial type areas around. Um, most cities in Melbourne um, are usually on the fringes uh, and usually have good access to um, to roadways and that sort of thing, trains, uh, and in some parts the ports, so that um, things can get in and out. So those inner city areas that have been formerly commercial uses or industrial uses, um, subject to contamination and environmental studies and things, more often than not, the highest and best use of those is going to be residential um, because there's there's going to be services in and around those areas. Um, that will make them very suited to development um, and they are quite close to the city. So um, from an access perspective, they're, they're in demand in that, that um, location as well. Uh, and land is uh, at an absolute premium close to see those, the capital cities of Australia. So to be able to get access to those sorts of, those sorts of properties means that the highest and best use is, is more than likely not going to be what it's currently being used for. So that's, that's one example. Um, it might be sometimes too for say some old apartment buildings that um, quite often um, 19, Art Deco 1950s era apartment buildings didn't necessarily utilise all of the land that they've uh, they've been built on. So whether or not that current use is the highest and best, or whether or not there's alternate uses and, and higher density developments that could potentially be put on those sites, um, might mean that there's alternate uses that could be higher and better than what it's currently used for. So those are the sorts of things that uh, typically get taken into account. And by higher and better, we're just talking about the 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 way to maximise the the market value, right? That's right. Yes. Beautiful. Now, what about Melbourne? I know Melbourne is your specialty. I want to focus a bit of time on the fundamentals and and what what are some of the key long term fundamentals that you think has has made Melbourne an attractive area for property investors? There's a number of things. Um, it's a it's obviously a growing city, and, and population is is continuing to grow. Um, it's quite a diverse city as well. So there's uh, not a heavy reliance on on one um, one economic factor that's really going to to keep Melbourne sustainable. Uh, but the population growth is certainly good. There's certainly high incomes being generated here. Um, there's certainly a perceived high quality of life with um, Melbourne being voted the most livable city, or certainly in the top 
top five for, for many years. Um, but there's also a scarcity value of older style assets, which is typically what we focus on. Um, and the fact that there's some fairly conservative planning rules means that those older style period type assets um, are hard to come by uh, and there's not many more of them that are being built. Um, and as a result, the demand for them is very strong um, and the supply is limited. So you typically find that there's some uh, some good capital growth prospects for those types of properties in those inner city su- suburbs of Melbourne. Scarcity, uh, as you mentioned, I think that's a really important one. Um, and, and I've heard you talk a lot about scarcity. Obviously, that just amplifies the demand outside of your normal sort of su- supply-demand characteristics. But how, how, do we, how do we source something that has this inherent scarcity? And, and also, I wanted to ask you about um, underlying land values. So there was a, um, I think it was a video that I saw you do where you were talking about the, the two of them as, as, as some of the major drivers for a, a property that's going to outperform the market. Yeah, they're certainly the two key characteristics that we're looking for when we're uh, when we're focusing on investment property. So, from a scarcity value perspective, it's it's making sure that you're getting a property that um, is in limited supply but is always in strong demand. So, um, scarce properties in and around this, they're not always uh, they're certainly not unusual properties, um, and there's there's consistent demand for them, but there's not necessarily that many of them available. So you find that the, the cottages and the terrace houses that were built um, Victorian, Edwardian, even through to the, the semi-detached um, Art Deco 1930s era, uh, because that type of property in those inner city areas is not being built anymore, they are a very scarce asset. Um, it is a difference between a scarce asset and an, and an anomalous asset. So when you start to move into that space, you're looking at properties that um, are quite different and not necessarily um, in high levels of demand, but there might be one or two people that would want them. Scarce assets are more around the supply of it um, and that there's there's not a lot of that, but the demand is still very strong, which then leads you to that underlying land component. And when you're talking about some of these cottages and terrace houses in, um, in the inner city areas, it sort of comes back to, like we said before, that highest and best use. Land is at a um, at an absolute premium in these inner city suburbs because it's just not available and you can't make any more of it. So, getting getting uh, properties in areas where there is a strong land value because people do want to be there, um, but it's hard to come by, means that you'll um, you'll get um, good levels of capital growth and having that strong underlying land value, whether it be in an older style little terrace house or whether it be in an older style apartment or a villa unit, something along those lines. Um, having that underlying land component is really what will drive growth long term. I think everyone would pretty much agree with you if having you know land is is something that really drives the value. There's the old adage of land appreciates and building depreciates. Does does that push you so far as to say that say houses are better than units because their percentage of land in that type of investment is going to be better, or is it a little bit more complicated than just trying to get the biggest parcel that you can? It's a bit more complicated than the biggest parcel you can because it's not just about the um, the land, having land. It's about having the right land. Um, and you don't want to just have land any old in any old location. It needs to be in the right spot. Um, so that's why when we do discuss investment properties with clients, it's not just about buying a property in a certain suburb because that's a blue chip suburb. It's buying that suburb, but then buying the right street, buy within the, on the right side of that street. Um, and then if you're looking at an apartment, buying the right position within that block. Um, so that you're getting the, everything right about the property. So um, land is absolutely um, a key component. And if, if the financial um, capabilities allow for it, getting a house at a certain point is certainly going to be 
advantageous. But if you go into the wrong type of house too, we talk a lot about um, buying properties that have got multifaceted demand and not being heavily reliant on just one buyer profile. Um, and if you're moving into, say, middle ring type suburbs where you might have large parcels of land, but you're heavily reliant on only home buyers that are going to be looking at that property, um, it may not work quite as well as an investment. Um, so, by, as a as I say, terrace house where you don't have, um, where you do have that more multifaceted demand because it's not just going to be families that would look at a property like that. It'll be downsizers. There'll be investors that would be interested. There'd be um, set first home buyers who might be there who don't necessarily need the accommodation and may not be intending to have children. So there's a lot more um, wide levels of demand for certain types of property. So it's not all about just getting as much land as you can. It's about getting the right type of property. I think that's a really interesting one and, and, and from my perspective, really great advice. Trying to find more than one sort of buyer profile that's going to be attracted to the property that you purchase as an investment. Uh, I was going to ask you, do, do you subscribe to any sort of metrics of we like suburbs with you know less than a 40% investor rate or something like that? And, and also, how, how do you source something that's going to have more than one buyer profile? I'm not just talking about sort of rental versus oh, investor versus owner, but something that maybe, I guess, a downsizer and maybe a professional couple might have. Do you try and look at the demographics to target properties that, that fit more than one profile? It's understanding what, what those different profiles would be looking for um, and understanding what's important to them uh, and, and then trying to, to make sure that it, it's broad across multiple, both of those sectors. So, for instance, um, the terrace houses do work well in that space because they're low maintenance. So from a downsizer's perspective, um, they don't necessarily want to have a huge garden anymore. They don't. They would prefer to, to live a, a um, more cosmopolitan lifestyle perhaps uh, and be able to come and go and do other things as opposed to in the past where they've wanted to have an outdoor space, larger garden for children, pets, that sort of thing. Um, but that property also works quite well from an investor's perspective because there's no need for a um, – uh, a tenant to have to look after gardens and, and keep things maintained um, and have a reliance on that tenant to do that. And if they don't, then the value of the property could start to, depre to decrease, particularly if the garden is a significant component of the value. Um, but they also work well from a first first home buyer's perspective because first home buyers might, might quite often be um, at the, the younger end of the scale if they've been able to get into the property market uh, and don't necessarily want to change their lifestyle too much at that point in time. So want to be closer into the city continue to be able to go out with friends, that sort of thing, um, and not have, again, too much of a lifestyle, but build into, um, have scope to be able to increase the size of that property. We're seeing quite regularly nowadays, two-bedroom terrace houses, cottages, that sort of thing, that are having first-floor extensions put on, um, and then uh, and buyers are staying put. So it's a lot harder to, to come across those properties because a lot more buyers these days, are, or homeowners, I should say, are um, rather than moving out. Typically, you would see in the past, people would buy inner city property and then move out to, to middle ring suburbs. But a lot more people these days are staying put because the cost of tra uh, transacting um, is so expensive with stamp, stamp duty and um, agents fees, marketing, all that sort of thing. Uh, people decide that People decide they'll just stay put and they'll uh, utilize public open space as opposed to having a um, a larger backyard. Yeah, and all of those 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 transaction costs go a long way to funding part of that renovation in an area that you're established and perhaps your children go to school or at least you know the the local coffee guy and he says you know the usual Mr McCabe. 
knows your name and that sort of thing. And people really like that and really appreciate that. And, and I think people and a lot of the inner city suburbs too now have got, um, uh, particularly around Melbourne, uh, there's some fantastic primary schools and people are really, and, and they're developing um, really nice little communities and they don't want to move out to a suburban area where they perhaps aren't as familiar with. Um, so they, they're more than happy to stay put um, and, uh, and use those public open spaces. Well, I have to ask the question, uh, otherwise there might be some sort of revolt from the listeners, but anytime Melbourne comes up, it seems like on the tip of the tongue is the oversupply issue with, with apartments. So just to, to change directions there, obviously we're, we're talking a little bit more of the blue chip areas and, and some of these these nicer houses on a, on a parcel of land. It's a completely different asset class in a way to these off-the-plan units. What 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 has really gone on and transpired in in, in some of these areas like South Bank and and is it just constricted to those areas? Can you areas? Can you give us a bit of an insight there, Jared? I mean, the, the majority are in that sort of we talk about the the zero to two kilometre radius of the city. So it's the CBD itself, it's Docklands, it's South Bank, it's parts of St Kilda Road, um, but it's probably spilt a little bit further out to some of the other inner suburban areas. Richmond's had a lot of um, apartments constructed in it. South Yarra has as well, parts of North Melbourne, West Melbourne. Um, but you typically find that it's South Bank, South Melbourne, those sorts of areas have had a, had a lot of them built. Um, and there's a there's still a lot that are in the um, in planning stages and in the pipeline that perhaps have been approved, but construction hasn't commenced yet. Um, so the supply is ever on the increase. I mean, we quite often we refer to it as the um, the infinite asset class because there's just more and more of the same thing being built. And if you do buy off the plan, um, by the time you typically take possession of it, um, if there's not another one around the corner, one has been approved. Yeah, and when you're talking about scarcity, uh, a development going up can take your property of one of you know a thousand types to one of two thousand types in an afternoon, right? That's right. I mean, and you, once you do take possession of it, if you've looked at it as an investment, you won't be the only one, particularly with, um, in and around Melbourne. A lot of um, international investors have been purchasing into some of these developments. So they'll be looking to lease them out as well to uh, to gain a, uh, an income. So you quite often find that there's a um, significant influx of supply on the rental market um, when, those, when these properties get completed. So um, you can have a vacancy period um, of a fairly long time before you're able to secure a tenant. I've heard you say before that um, depreciation spruiking in a in a particular property or an investment is uh, is a warning sign. And um, even though I'm a depreciation nerd myself, I, I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help but agree with you because I, I've said over and over again. Yes, I'd I'd love to sell you a depreciation schedule, but I'd much rather you have a better performing uh, property investment. If that means something that doesn't have any deductions, all the better. But buying for the purpose of deductions is a bit of a dangerous thing it sort of makes me uh, i guess question why so many people have bought into these apartments is it is it when we look at the sort of the carrot versus the stick the sort of paying too much tax stick seems to carry a lot of weight do you do you think that's why so many people jumped into these apartments there could be some fairly persuasive arguments put forward by um, developers and uh, and others that are uh, spruiking these types of developments at certain times so i think that uh, has a large amount to do with it um, uh, there, there would certainly be an element of that that um, people do get too focused on the tax savings that they can possibly make. Um, but 
as um, as I've been told many times, um, saving tax is not going to um, make you money. It's not going to make you financially independent. Absolutely, everyone w- wants to save as much tax as possible. No one wants to pay it if they don't need to. Um, and you should take advantage of depreciation benefits where possible. But that shouldn't be the reason that you purchased the property in the first place. So turning it around to the actual developers, so um, you know we've, we've talked about all the investors going into these properties and might be struggling to get capital growth or reasonable yields for a long time, but why, why have the developers jumped in so hard? I mean, they, 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 these, these people are, are sophisticated. I'm, I'm guessing they would employ accountants and financial advisors and demographers to sort of help them look at these areas and, and, and the, the, the demand characteristics. Has it just been the case that too many have come in at one or was was the CBD land value just too good to pass up? Do, do, can you sort of pin that on anything, do you think? Typically, to pin it on anything specific. Um, look, I, I mean, the developers are always there to make a profit for themselves. That's the end objective. They're not there to, to, buy, to build you a property that's going to um, appreciate in value. They're there to make sure that they can make a profit, to put um, food on the table for their family. Um, and then it's up to, to you to, to determine that going forward. So... Um, the supply, uh, as long as they can get enough transactions to justify doing things and to make a profit, then they'll proceed. The problem is that they're not so worried about the um, the ten other developers around the corner that are going to to put properties onto the uh, onto the market as well. That once you then um, get to a certain point. Um, you're then going to have to compete with. And I mean, the other thing that's probably changed a little bit in recent times too is the um, the changes to. Uh, overseas uh, buyers and, and the requirements that um, they can no longer sell as much of a development to uh, an international um, buyer. They can only really sell 50% now. So that's reduced the buyer pool to a certain degree as well. Um, and what that does also is that those international buyers, when they get to a point of perhaps wanting to sell, well, they can no longer sell to another international buyer because the property's secondhand. Um, so once it becomes secondhand, it's got to be sold to a um, – to an Australian citizen or someone who's got the appropriate residency um, to be able to buy that property. And all of a sudden, there's a, a significant amount of supply because the demand isn't there for that type of property. It's a real dis- the market distorting sort of thing, isn't it? I guess it's a bit like with the, the negative gearing proposals that the second owner wouldn't get the benefits. So the valuation metrics change a bit. That gets a little bit difficult to navigate, I guess. That was always the concern with the proposed changes to negative gearing. It wasn't so much that, that changes were going to be made. If they're going to be made and they're justifiable, fine. But the, the concern was that there was going to be um, negative gearing for, for what I would and what we would consider to be the wrong type of property. So it's encouraging people to focus more on the tax savings and on the depreciation side of things rather than the quality of the asset, which is what we were dealing with a number of years ago. And you're probably in a better position to talk about that than me, but whereby um, stamp duty savings could be um, could be met. But, um, and then obviously depreciation benefits for secondhand properties, um, you could still claim those sorts of things. But then when that was changed and it was, well, if you didn't do the work or you didn't buy it brand new, you can no longer make those claims anymore. Um, so things have changed and I, I thought that was that was the way they changed things. I thought was for the better, but I felt if the um, if we had have had a change of government, the the, the 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 change of focus for negative gearing to move towards or to encourage people to buy the wrong property, that was the main concern that I had around it. Yeah, whether you you believe in in structural tax reform or what have you, pushing people into an area where I think the spruikers tend to set up shop is is a little bit um, concerning. We've spent a bit of time talking about. 
shitty investments, for want of a better term. <laughs> Let's talk about A-grade investments. What, what does an A-grade investment property look like to you? And does and, and does that question change when you sit down in front of the, the would-be investor? Do you assess their portfolio first to see what fits or is A-grade always A-grade and that's what you'd recommend? A-grade's always A-grade, but you still it still needs to fit within their portfolio. So you want to make sure that they're getting some diversification within that portfolio as well um, to make sure that it's not just all of the same type of property because, as we know, their um, property doesn't all move in, uniform, in a uniform manner. Different properties move in different rates. And the last 18 months has been a pretty good example of that, or the last five years has been a pretty good example of that because we've seen um, the first uh, – we saw some significant growth, particularly in the housing market um, – during the um, from sort of 2014, 15, 16, and into 17, um, and then the housing market particularly really dropped off in the last 18 months, as we spoke about earlier. So, um, but the apartment sector probably because of that increase in supply. And when I talk about the apartment sector, I talk more about that older style period type apartment. Um, but even those haven't done um, performed perhaps as well as may have been expected in certain sectors. But they've actually held up quite well in the last 18 months. And that's, again, because they've got that multifaceted demand. And the sector of the market that's been most active in the last 18 months has been the first home buyers. Um, and that's in an affordable price bracket. Those older style apartments, 50s, 60s, 70s era, um, in, the, in the price range of sort of 500 to 750, um, they've held reasonably well over that period of time because the first home buyers have still been active uh, and have still been in the marketplace. So... It's understanding that you, you do get a bit of balance and having a diverse portfolio is really important. So that's that's always part of the uh, the, the initial discussion that we have with clients is to make sure that um, we, we've got a clear understanding as to what they've got and what their objectives are, and then it's to make sure that they're buying the right property. And, and we, we mean, it depends on the price bracket um, that the client uh, is going to be looking in to determine what type of property that we would be focusing on. Um, But it needs to be all those things that we've discussed, scarce property, strong underlying land value, um, multifaceted demand, good good suburb, good street, good position in the block if it's an apartment, good floor plan, um, neither under nor overcapitalized in terms of its internal condition, um, and making sure that it's going to meet with demand both from a a, a resale perspective but also from a tenancy point of view. Just on that price bracket, uh, point that you you raised. Uh, that's an interesting one for me because I, we've we've had people on the podcast that basically say if you can't get half a million dollars, we don't want to work with you because we don't really see the ma- the major gains are in the cheaper property. Obviously, if people are coming to, to you and they're saying we want to buy an investment property, we can we can borrow up to seven hundred. At, at what point is there, I guess, a point where people should perhaps save a little bit more for something that's going to have a better upside potential, or is it better to just sort of get in and get something that maybe is doing uh, 1% year on year less at a lower price point just because the benefits outweigh the, I guess, the, the opportunity cost of waiting? Yeah, look, I, we're, um, we probably take the conservative approach to that, Mike, in that um, if, if we prefer to see a client buy the right property, if they can't buy the right property, then we prefer to see them save. Um, so we're probably more along the lines of, look, we're not going to just buy your property for the sake of buying your property. It needs to be quality. Uh, if it's not quality, then there's certainly a, a number of other investment um, classes that you could look at to, make, to, um, to build up your um, financial capacity and then get into property at the right time. Um, so I would say I don't disagree with um, the previous people you've discussed to say sub five hundred thousand because I think you're typically finding now that you're having to go um, to buy potentially compromised properties if it's if it's too far below that um, that aren't necessarily going to show the appreciation that they should. 
um, and they may be in areas that um, they might have strong growth um, for a short period of time, but they'll plateau off for an extended period of time. So I think it's buying the right property and having the right capacity. Property's not for everyone. Uh, you need to be able to do it, do it the right way. If you can't do it the right way, don't don't um, get offended. It's not something that um, that should be seen as a negative. It's it's preventing you from making mistakes and buying the wrong thing. That's interesting, and I think it it shows the the value that you place in your brand that you're happy to sort of say to someone, look, we're not the best fit for you because we're either transacting on something that's quality or we'd rather not do it at all. I'm wondering that given the sort of the finance environment we're in at the moment where maybe people aren't able to access anything like that, what they used to, you, you see a lot of investors moving into places like Southeast Queensland, for example. So there's obviously a, a much um, cheaper price point. Where, where do you sort of stand on, on, on chasing the, the, the hotspots around the country? And, and do you believe that, that someone should be looking at, uh, say, a buyer's agent such as yourself that, that will access those markets? Or is it better to sort of specialize in your own little pockets? Well, we spe- that's that's how where we pitch ourselves. We certainly um, pitch ourselves as experts in Melbourne. So I, I can uh, look our clients in the eye and say I wouldn't buy on that side of the street, but I'd buy on that side of the street. I know that block, and I know that I wouldn't buy the ground floor apartments on that in that block because they've um, there's been structural issues with that block, or there's been moisture issues underneath the ground floor. So we need to avoid that. So we know Melbourne intimately, and that's what that's where we pitch ourselves. So. Others focus on, like you said, Southeast Queensland or other parts of the country and, and, and look more at the demographics and, and potential for growth in those sorts of areas. Um, as I said, we, we do take things on a more conservative approach um, and, and go for properties that have got a proven track record, shown themselves to be good quality, as opposed to this might work. Because the risk with the hotspot approach um, is that how long is it going to take to actually react? And we've seen that plenty of times where that it, it, it may take a lot longer and could you have invested your money elsewhere and had it continue to tick along and get that growth on growth effect that um, good quality investment properties do achieve. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it looks really exciting to jump into a market that does 15 or 20% in a year, but then perhaps does nothing for another 15, whereas a property that's doing you know, 4 or 5% year on year in a blue chip area might actually outperform over the long term, but it just doesn't look as good on the brochure, right? No, that's right. And look, I mean, again, it's the the, the old. Um, if you if you look at some of those sorts of areas, you can you can find quite often too that there might be a reason that the property's had that fifteen to twenty percent growth in a short space of time. It might be the introduction of some new infrastructure to that area. But we've certainly seen multiple times that once that infrastructure becomes the new norm for that location, that typically they revert back to their previous levels of performance. Um, and it's and then and then start to just track along at those sorts of levels. So you need to be convinced that it's going to be a, a game changer that's going to to make that growth continue to keep appreciating at those sorts of levels, not just be a one-off. I wouldn't mind having a look at say a couple of hypothetical case studies, and this this might be a bit painful because I'm not going to give you too many variables. But let's say you've got a, a first-time investor who's wanting to purchase at a lower price point in in Melbourne, maybe. And I might need some guidance from you, but I'm presuming you can still buy things in Melbourne that fit your criteria around the sort of six fifty seven hundred mark. Can we contrast that to someone who's maybe got one point two, one point three to spend? How 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 do the assets look do, do they look differently and, and what sort of different locations would would we be looking at with those two different budgets locations are probably not dissimilar in that they're probably still within that 10k radius in the city um, there might be a slightly different um, different 
direction from the city rather than being perhaps north, you might be east or southeast because a lot of the um, the high quality apartments that uh, have been built, the older style ones with boutique low low rise blocks, um, most a lot of those were built in the eastern and southeastern suburbs. So. Um, you typically find that there's some good options there from a 650 to 700,000 type bracket. Um, so for good two bedroom apartments, um, that's probably where I would I would look. But for the 1.2, 1.3 mil range, it's more of that terrace house in the northern suburbs, that sort of thing. So the and the inner northern suburbs because you can get some really good value for money in those sorts of areas. Um, they've got great servicing in terms of um, public transport. The, uh, the local villages in and around there have really um, diversified in recent years and, and, and continue to develop and go further and further out. So High Street um, around Northcote is um, is a really good example of that. So you've got High Street runs out through Northcote, Thornbury and out into Preston and even continues out towards Reservoir. Um, but there's some fantastic property in and around there. And as a um, geographical area and as a, um, a village, the quality of shops running out High Street is just getting better and better and going further and further north. So um, that's really important and, and that makes that sort of a location um, quite strong from a demand perspective. And it does have, as I mentioned earlier, some really good quality local schools and that sort of thing that, um, that say, young families and, uh, and, and things are looking for. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know exactly what I expected you to say, but I thought that maybe those different price points would have you in different areas, but you're still looking in the similar area. It's just the type of asset, the the older style apartment block rather than the, the nice sort of quintessential Melbourneian sort of terrace house. Yeah, so if you, I mean, if you take 650 and you're trying to buy yourself a house um, for that sort of effect, you, you're going to be going a long way out of Melbourne to be able to do that in the current market. Um and I'm sort of, it's probably 20 kilometers plus. And so you're then moving into, like we said earlier, um, fantastic locations from a home buyer's perspective because there'll be schools and that sort of thing around. And if that works for you in that regard, then that's absolutely what you should buy. But whether that's the right type of property from an investment perspective, because it, again, it's more of that owner occupier type accommodation as opposed to having that diverse um, buyer profile. I wanted to ask you a question about the, I guess there's been more information online, certainly with social media from buyers agents uh, at large than I've seen for a long time. Obviously, real estate media is not a new thing, but you could certainly get lost as a consumer. I'm wondering if if a lot of people come to to people like yourself and, and your business with an idea in mind about what they're wanting to purchase or do people come to you and say, Jared, I want to build my wealth and I want to retire, blah, 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 help me to do it? Well, as with most businesses, you get a variety. Um, we get some people that come in and just say, look, I've got X dollars to spend, tell me what to do. Um, and we'll get others that will come in and say, I've, um, I've got X dollars to spend, I want to buy this. And then, and so it's, it's, us, it's on us then as experts to, to listen, understand why they're thinking the way they're thinking, what is, what's brought them to that point. Um, and if it's in line with what we're thinking, great. If it's not, then it's helping them to understand why perhaps we don't necessarily think that's the best way to go and what these other what other alternatives might be that they should consider. And if that matches up and they can come to an understanding that that's why we would think, that's then that's great. But if they're adamant that they want to do things and if it's not in line with what, what we would recommend and what we do, then typically we won't work with them because we, we do have principles that we work with and, we, and, and why would, and we, we work to those um, 
for a, for a very strong reason and because they've got a proven track record. And we don't want to be promising something that we that we can't go and follow through on. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think for, for businesses, certainly newer business, it takes a bit of courage to turn someone away. But if you're, if you're in it for the right reasons and for the long terms, then, then it, then it pays off in the end. I'm interested if, if there are some sort of preconceived investor notions that come from the media or what have you, or, or Uncle Barry from the barbecue, ideas that investors have that you could erase from their minds. Is there anything that sort of sticks out to you with maybe just some preconceived ideas that, that people often have? That you wish you could sort of delete from them. The, the hotspot approach is one of those, right. um, and people do come in and say, "Well, what's what's going to be the next massive growth area, or what's a what's an area that's really undervalued?" And look, the undervalued side of things, we can we certainly work with that, um, but it's typically more within the realms of what we're talking about, and it's more smaller po- pockets of of um, certain suburbs. But it's not so much a, it's going to be a hotspot type type scenario. So that's probably one that, that we do. Um, clients that are heavily focused on um, yield as opposed to capital growth and and, and, and wanting a, a really high rental return. Uh, so that's that's one that we come across quite regularly and that we work through with them to help them to understand why having a high yield is actually a reflection of a property that perhaps is not necessarily going to be a great investment because high yield typically works across purposes with high capital growth. There's a greater um, greater amount of the property's value is going to be the improvements typically with that, and there's more than likely going to be a greater level of supply. So there, there are a couple of things that we do typically come across. And look, it's not a matter of, I guess, um, being too frustrated because I, I like to um, get a clear understanding as to why they've come to that. And, and typically once you you do sit down with someone and, and hear why they've come to that perspective and then um, have a really good chat to them about why it perhaps isn't necessarily the right way to go, but why this alternative might be, um, they they do really come come to an understanding that it, it's not the be-all and end-all and that there might be other ways. Everyone's different though. Yeah, for sure. And I guess you can't blame people for, for having those ideas and, and people wanting the shortcuts and that sort of stuff. High yielding is something that I, I wouldn't mind zeroing in on because that, that's getting a lot of publicity at the moment. Um, it, it, it sounds fantastic. Like why have an investment property that's going to take money out of your pocket? But of course, capital growth is, an, is a harder thing to understand because it might not be materialized sort of year on year. Is, is someone chasing a high yielding property maybe an example of someone that shouldn't be purchasing an investment property if they can't afford to have something that's negatively geared with a good upside potential do you think yeah i do i mean i think sometimes people um we quite regularly have people perhaps are moving more towards retirement stage and so looking for income as opposed to growth because they're more at that stage of their um financial life and and the discussions that we have with them are, and, and with a number of financial advisors that we work with is, well, there's other asset classes that would be far better on a return basis than what property would be um, as that. Because what you can find is that type of property that might get you a high yield, um, the yield could actually start to drop as the, um, the value of that property starts to come back because it isn't an oversupply or it does have too much value in the improvements, which, as we said before, are starting to depreciate because that's what... Um, uh, the the general gist of that property is. So um, we do tend to suggest that there's other alternatives. If the yield is a really important aspect to why you're investing, then perhaps property is not the right thing to be going into. Maybe it's it's some other form of asset class. Can you run us through, I guess, the the, the menu of what Wakeland Property Advisory does, what your services are, and and how you help investors? 
So we've got a number of different services. We, um, as I said, we focus predominantly on investors, but we do work a lot with home buyers as well. Um, and, and depending, we've got a number of different services in that space. When we're working for uh, investors, it's to cover the market. We like to have at least a couple of uh, our, our team members inspect the property before we would get to a point of discussing it with the client because everyone sees things differently. Everyone in our team is looking for the same thing, but we might have a different perspective on um, perhaps a an apartment being overlooked by a neighbouring building or whether it's dark or whether it's natural light is an issue or whether the floor plan doesn't work. So we like to have two perspectives on a property where possible. Um, and then we go, once we've done that, we, we go ahead with our due diligence around where does value sit with this property? What, um, where do we think um, underlying market value sits? What's market sentiment dictating for that type of property at any particular time? Um, and then once we've gotten to that point, we start to discuss things with the client um, and take them, hold their hand through the buying process, um, carry out due diligence around building inspections, contract checks, um, and then obviously going through the negotiation process with them as well, depending on the method of sale. Beautiful. And you've certainly got some street cred there, Jared, and you've shared some gold with us today. If, if people want to have a chat to you or get in touch with you, is there an easy way for them to do that? Typically, the, the website's the easiest way, Mike. So that's uh, wakeland.com.au um, or our uh, office number is 03-9859-9595. Beautiful. We make it nice and easy for people. Um, now, Jared, this one might not be as easy for yourself because I'm asking you to narrow down all your knowledge into one piece of advice. But if there is one piece of advice you could give to property investors, what would that be? Quality over quantity. Uh, mate, that's that's good. We've already got the quote card. We might have to pad it out a little bit to fit the sort of graphical requirements, but uh, I think that's perfect. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, a lot. We see a lot when it comes to investment around at the moment around um, people talking about owning thirty plus properties yielding this amount. But um, I, that's where we come to that. You're better off. I'd much prefer rather than owning 10 properties to own two really good ones that are, that are going to, uh, to set me up rather than having 10 that are going to have high yields and potentially when I come to the point of needing to sell them that if they haven't uh, appreciated at the same rate or perhaps have even gone backwards. That's a really interesting one for me because you hear all the time people sort of say, you know, my investment goal is I want to own 10 properties. There's no sort of, I guess, advice on, well, I want to own one in each state or I want to own one commercial and nine resis or four houses and six units. Do you think that's a bit of a, I guess, a a psychological thing that investors have that they've they've pinned it on that number of properties as, as sort of meeting their criteria for property success? Yeah, I do. And I think people do get focused too much on because there are so many um, people, self-made people who claim that they've um, they've done some fantastic things with property. And I, I, that's that's the concern that, it, that it, it comes across as, wow, how well have you done to get that many properties and to, to leverage off them and whether they've, they have bought some good properties. And it's not to say that some of them haven't. Um, but you need the, the quality of the asset is, is absolutely important. It's the first thing that we always talk about with our clients is get the asset selection right um, and then we'll worry about buying it for the best price we possibly can. But get that we've got to get the asset selection right first and foremost. I found on this podcast that often the best advice is the least sexy, quality over quantity. Lock it in here. Jared, thank you very much for, for sharing your, your insights with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Mike. It's been great talking to you. Cheers. Cheers. 